present the word of God, uh, to minister in the word of God. So I'll be ministering. Anybody who is new here, anyone who is, this is your first Sunday. Um, oh, wow. <laughs> Whoa. Fantastic. Welcome. Welcome, and thank you for choosing to worship with us here at uh, Kampala International Church. We are one church. We have three branches, and thank you that you have chosen to join us this morning. We look forward to meeting and talking to you um, after the service, so please don't disappear. There's a cup of tea, coffee, free of charge. Um, <laughs> Uganda, we love free things, so really, just to emphasize that, free of charge, so you can partake of that as we fellowship together. Okay. Um, so, <clears throat> for those who have been here and those who have been regular, um, I think, you know, we've been going through a preaching series on the parables of Jesus. Anybody been blessed out of those uh, parables? Yes, fantastic. One or two people, the rest are still thinking, which is okay. <laughs> the blessings shall come after you and overtake you. Um, so, um, our Lord Jesus really uh, was out to minister on the grace and the love of God. Um, and he did this by teaching using the parables, little simple short stories that are memorable, that we can remember, that talk to us about the kingdom of God, how the kingdom of God functions, um, how we're supposed to live in the kingdom of God so that we can be fruitful and successful. Now, today is actually the last day on this series. So we're doing the last parable of this series. And I thought it would be good to do a quick recap, just very quickly, of the lessons that we have learned, eh? some of the things that we've learned out of the stories that we've heard, the parables we've heard. Many of them are very familiar to all of us. Um, we've heard them from the time we were very young. Um, I'm sure some of us have learned new lessons um, by listening in on these parables. And I pray really that the lessons we've learned will continue to minister to you. So I'm just going to do a very, very quick summary of the lessons we have learned. And I'll summarize. I'm not going to go through each parable. Um, and it's, it's interesting. I was actually reflecting on this over the week. There are, there are certain common themes that appear over and over again in these parables. And it's as if Jesus is really emphasizing and, and at, at going at great lengths to explain that there are certain things that are very dominant in the kingdom of God that we need to know about, we need to understand to be successful. Um, and this is what my summary is really based on. The fact that uh, this is the first thing that really comes up over and over again, the fact that we have a God, a king, a master, you know, every parable, almost every parable has this concept of a God, or rather a king, um, a father, a master, um, and this is something that Jesus is emphasizing over and over again, that we have a God, we have a king, we have a father whose heart is really for us. He has tremendous love for us. If you check those parables, um, the father or the king was always um, operating in this love for his household, for his uh, servants even, his sons, his children, and so on. So... Um, this is something that is emphasized over and over in the parables, and God wants us to know this, that he really loves us, and he wants us to walk in that love, that we be prosperous and fruitful and succeed in the kingdom of God um, as his children. Um, something else that also gets mentioned over, and, uh, over again is that we can succeed as citizens of the kingdom when we are truly submitted to God, uh, but at the same time we can fail as citizens of the kingdom when we are rebellious towards him, towards his ways, when we continue rebelling against him. Um, this came out in the prodigal son, um, the parable of the ten talents. Um, this really talked about the importance of remaining submitted to him. 
Another thing that comes up is stewardship. Stewardship. God has entrusted each one of us, each one of us with gifts. Um, and, 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 you know, it's important for us to recognize that we have gifts that go beyond just the material things. Yes, we have life, we have health and all these things, but we also have things like faith. Um, each one of us, the fact that you're seated here is a measure of the fact that you have faith. Um, you have faith in the fact that, you know, you have a God, you serve a God who is real and who is able to minister in your situation. And that's a gift. Um, another gift is the power of God working on the inside of us. Um, Christine mentioned in, in the word this morning that we need to live with that knowledge that we have the spirit of God on the inside of us. He is alive. It's a marvelous gift. It's a fantastic gift. Um, and even as we recognize these gifts, uh, God expects us to steward them, to steward them, you know, to manage them, um, to, to effect them, to, to, to walk in them wisely. In 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10, it talks about, you know, each one has received a gift. And it says each one, each one, every single person has received a gift. And it says use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace good stewards of God's varied grace. So that's another thing. The other thing is that we need to grow spiritually. This is, again, emphasized in many of the parables we looked at. Um, we need to grow spiritually. Nobody enters the kingdom of God fully grown or fully equipped. We have to grow. And, and even Jesus had to grow. I don't know if you realize this, but even Jesus had to grow. Um, the scripture in Luke chapter 2, verse 52, talks about he grew in wisdom and stature, and stature um, and in favor with God and man. So Jesus had to grow, I mean, in wisdom. That means he had little wisdom, then a little bit more, then a little bit more, and then it kept on increasing until eh, he was full of wisdom. So there's a growth process in the kingdom of God. And spiritual, mat uh, spiritual maturity happens when we really grow um, by meditating on the word of God, uh, by really learning the word of God, because that's how we are fed, that's how our muscles develop, and that's how we become fruitful. Um, and this is why, really, discipleship is so, so important. Um, whether you're a disciple here or a disciple um, in home groups or wherever you are, discipleship is so, so important. You're dedicating time and effort to really think about the Word of God, uh, what it means to you, how you can, um, how you can manifest it in your life. Um, the parable of the wheat and the tares tells us that when we are, uh, that, that you know, when, when we are born again into the kingdom of God, basically we are young and spiritually immature. And most of the time, by the way, you can't even tell the difference. Eh? I think this is something that Alistair mentioned. When, when plants are young, you can't tell the difference between the plant and the weed, the, the wheat and the tares. Um, they look all alike. The, the, the wheat looks like the tares and the tares or the weeds look like the wheat. So it's hard to tell the difference. And we see this in discipleship many, many times. Um, when, when people start off in discipleship, um, the way they react to things that, you know, that light, the, the, the way they react to what life throws at them, a lot of the time is very similar to the way that unbelievers react. And Daniel gave a, puff, a very powerful testimony about the practicalities of the Christian life. You get born again, and actually sometimes things become even worse <laughs> than when you are an unbeliever. And um, if you are not equipped to deal with these things, sometimes it can be overwhelming, and you wonder, did I really make the right decision? Um, so it can be tempting to actually take a step back. But with discipleship, we've observed many times that when people come to know the Lord and then take an extra step and really put their minds in studying the scriptures over and over again, there's a massive difference as they grow. The wheat becomes very separate from the tares. 
you can see that separation. And many of them give testimonies like Daniel. They now become so equipped that they can actually minister to other people. Um, so it's something that we value. It's one of our values here in this church, that we equip men and women for uh, really for their own growth as well as for growth of wherever God places them. So uh, Moira mentioned there is a new discipleship class that is starting very, very soon, actually next week. Um, and we are, you know, if you are interested, um, there are brochures that are available. Do you bring me one? Yes. There are brochures that are available at the back of the church. Um, if you want to know more about how the discipleship class runs, um, please, you can pick one, one brochure. And even if maybe you're not ready to join, you know somebody who is really willing and interested to join discipleship, please take a brochure and you can give it to them and then have them really contact us and we can take it from there, okay? So we need to grow spiritually, very important. And then the other thing is that relationships are very, very key. And this is, again, something that comes up over and over again in the parables. Relationships are very important in the kingdom of God. God really values um, and desires relationship with us. You can see this in many parables that talk about the father uh, and his relationship with his sons, with his servants. So God really values relationship with us. Um, and he desires us also to have healthy relationships with one another. So walk in things like love, walk in forgiveness, walk in understanding with one another, uh, walk at peace with one another. So we saw that in the parable of the prodigal son, the unmerciful servants, and so on and so on. So I've spent a few minutes on this parables to summarize. Um, they're the ones that we've studied um, and some of the themes that have come out. If you want more information, you can always go onto our website um, and listen in. Um, Patrick is doing a fantastic job, job of really uploading this uh, parable, so you can, of this preaching, so you can go in and listen and be edified accordingly. So today being the last day for the parables, we're going to look at the final parable in the, in the series, and this is the parable of the wedding feast. The parable of the wedding feast, and this is recorded in Matthew chapter 22. Matthew chapter 22, so let's go there. Matthew chapter 22. So you can click or turn to Matthew chapter 22. Um, we're going to start from verse 1, Matthew chapter 22, from verse 1. And I'll read quickly through the parable, and then we can just summarize some important things that we can take away. Matthew chapter 22, verse 1, it says, And again Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son, and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Again, he sent other servants, saying, Tell those who are invited, See, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention, and they went off, one to his farm, another to his business, and while the rest seized his servants and treated them shamefully and killed them. In verse 7, the king was angry. The king was angry, and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, 
The wedding feast is ready, but those invited are not worthy. Go therefore to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out to the roads and gathered all whom they found, both good and bad. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. Verse 11, but when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place, there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth because many are called, but few are chosen. Many are called, few are chosen. Amen. So to really help us to understand this parable and to put it in context, um, we need to understand how marriages in Jesus' time were conducted. Marriages were typically arranged. Um, you had arranged marriages, and they were arranged by families. So it was the responsibility of your father, if you wanted to get married, it was the responsibility of your father or your uncle to arrange your marriage. Hmm. So there are basically three stages to this process. The first one is to engage the services of a broker. Okay? So we had brokers, not like the brokers we have today. You know, brokers sometimes get a very bad name in Uganda. But, you know, in those days, brokers were really um, very valued people. So a father or an uncle would get, engage the services of a broker. And then the broker would get to understand the family. They, they need to know you as a family. Um, they need to know who you are what you value, and so on and so on, before looking for a suitable bride for your son, maybe if it's a son who's getting married. And the whole aim of the marriage um, was not so much, you know, attraction or romantic love or anything like that. The, the aim of a marriage really was to bring families together that would mutually benefit from a, 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 um, a united, you know, being united as one. That was the intention of a broker, okay? So to unite the family of the bride as well as the family of the groom so that you have mutual benefit on both sides. Now, if you can remember, can you remember the, the story of Abraham? He arranged a marriage for Isaac. Do you remember who the broker was? Yes, shout it out. Who? Eliezer, exactly, Eliezer. Eliezer went to look for the bride. Um, from, uh, you know, Abraham gave very specific instructions. Don't get a bride from Canaan. So, you know, that was clearly understood before he went to look for a bride and he obtained um, Rebecca. So um, that was very typical in the time of Jesus as well. So this was the first stage. Get a broker who understands the needs of the family. And then the second stage is really the engagement or what we call the betrothal. The engagement or the betrothal. And this happens after the bride has been identified and if she, once she has accepted, um, uh, as well as you know, the family have accepted uh, to come together, then you have what we call the engagement. And engagement is very different from what we have today. The engagement was very, very official. So much so that if you had to break an engagement once you've come together, it was like a contract really. If you had to break it, you actually had to go through a divorce proceeding. That was how tough it was. Eh? Um, so when a man and woman were betrothed, they were really, in a sense, considered married, except they did not live together. Okay, so the society regarded them as married, but they did not live together. Um, if you can remember, like Mary and Joseph, for example, eh? Mary, the mother of Jesus, 
she was betrothed to a man named Joseph. And at one point, I think it, it talked about Joseph wanted to divorce her quietly. So you might think, but it's just engaged. But actually, engagement in Jesus' time meant you were really married. It's just that um, you don't live together. The other key thing that happens during engagement uh, was that the bridegroom would, during the time that they were engaged, be responsible to prepare a place to receive his bride. Okay, he would prepare a home uh, or a place where the bride, or he and the bride would live forever. So his responsibility during the time of engagement was just to prepare for this occasion. Um, when he was ready, when he was ready now to receive his bride, then he would come and fetch the bride. And this was the third stage of the marriage process. And they would have a massive feast. They would call it the wedding feast. Okay, they would call it the wedding feast. And the wedding feast is where the bridegroom is now ready to receive the bride and take him take her home with him. So this wedding feast is really the focus of this parable, okay? I've kind of gone a long story, but just understand this is where it's coming from. The wedding feast is the celebration for the bridegroom and the bride, because now at last, this marriage can really kick in. Um, they can live together. Uh, the bride can be welcomed into her new home, and they can start life together. So there are four major activities that happen in this wedding feast. Um, in this particular parable. The first major activity is the king's preparation. There's a lot of preparation that goes into wedding feasts. Now, in our society, weddings normally take how long? Depends on the culture, yes, absolutely. Or the tribe, or the, so wherever you come from. But the actual wedding, I mean, the actual wedding normally would be in a day. You'd have, yes, of course, the introductions and all these other ceremonies that happen, but typically the actual wedding celebration would happen in a day. You get married in church, and then you have a reception, and you celebrate together. So typically you're looking at one day. Now, in the Jewish tradition of Jesus' time, a wedding feast lasted seven days. Seven days, okay? So imagine being a service provider to such a wedding. <laughs> Seven days, all the best, yes. <laughs> okay? Clearly, there's a lot to do. The guests have to be fed for seven days. The guests have to be entertained for seven days. The guests have to be hosted for seven days. So it's a continuous celebration for seven days. And if the wedding is a royal wedding, there is so much more at stake. There's so much more pressure to ensure that everything goes well. So the king in this story has spent a lot of preparation time. He spends a lot of time really thinking about the details of this wedding. And according to, if you look at, for example, verse 4, he lists some of these things. He said dinner has been prepared. And that means not just dinner for one day, but it's a continuous dinner, dining for the, the seven days that you're here, your breakfast, your lunch, your supper, and all the other snacks that you'll need in between. All that is prepared in advance. The oxen and the fat calves have been slaughtered. And, and you know, the way it says here, it's not just one calf or one oxen. We're talking about several calves and several oxen have been slaughtered. That word means, you know, it's not just one calf being killed, but it means there's been a massive, you know, barbecue that, <laughs> that is being prepared for. Um, plus, everything else is ready for the guests. Um, and if you have been part of a wedding meetings, you know, some of us have wedding meetings before the actual wedding, you can generally tell how big or how grand a wedding is going to be based on the preparations that take place. Yeah? Okay? So if you are involved in the wedding meeting, you can sort of see how big is this wedding going to be. And this was clearly a wedding with no budget. 
or shall I say with an open budget. <laughs> so the king clearly wants his guests to enjoy the occasion and to celebrate in a very, very big way. So that's the heart of the preparation, the preparation part, you know, the activities behind the preparation. And I believe from a practical point of view, what Jesus is telling us through this parable is he's really trying to show us how much God, our king, desires us to en enter into the kingdom of God and enjoy life with him. So much so that he has done a lot to prepare and to make ready our entrance into the kingdom of God. You know, the preparation that went into the salvation plan for mankind, if you study the entire Old Testament, how God worked patiently over and over with the nation of Israel, and his, his planning, his thinking was really for people in our day and beyond, the people who would live after the nation of Israel. So his planning was very, very detailed. He wanted that to be possible for us to come and enjoy and make sure we find everything ready. So this is the heart of God for us, that we would really enjoy him and come when he has prepared everything for us. The second major activity that happens in the wedding feast um, is the king's invitation, okay? Invitations in Jesus' time were sent out personally using servants. So you don't just send a WhatsApp or call somebody. <laughs> you sent a servant, okay? There was dignity behind it. There was um, honor behind it. You had to send a servant. And you had to issue an invitation twice. The first invitation was to notify the guests that there's going to be a wedding. It's going to be on this day. Um, and in the second invitation, you actually go to the, to, the, to the guest's place and you call them, you invite them, you bring them, you make sure that they come. So you see this, um, the king invites his guests. Um, in verse 3, he sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Again, his, again he sent other servants saying, tell those who are invited and go, and so on and so on. So very, very specific invitations for you to come. Now, it is actually very offensive to turn down an invitation that has been issued to you, especially by the king. Very offensive. And in this case, the servants are really at pains to make sure people come, but the invitation is rejected. So the king then invites other people. He says, go out into the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you can find. Those servants went out and they gathered all whom they found, the bad as well as the good. So what does this mean? Why, are, why is this emphasis on invitation? And I think, again, Jesus is really emphasizing to us um, that God wants every single one of us to come to the feast. He doesn't want any single person to miss out on this celebration and this feast that he has prepared uh, for us. This feast is in honor of the Son, and he, wants, he doesn't want anyone to miss out. And there are many scriptures that emphasize this, to, that invite us to come over and over again. In the last chapter of Revelations, you know, this thing is so important that even right at the very end when the Bible is closing, when the, the, you know, the word is closing, the very final chapter of Revelation, God is inviting us to come. He is not only inviting us, but even mandating us, his bride, to invite others to come. In verse 17, it talks about the spirit and the bride say, come. And the one who hears say, come. Let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires to take the water of life without Price. So the invitation that you come is issued out to whosoever, whosoever. There is no one that is beyond the grace of God. So if you think of family members, you think of friends, you think of neighbors, you think of workmates, you think of people that you hang around with, there is really nobody that is beyond the grace of God. God invites and bids everyone come, okay? 
So this is God's heart for us, both the Jews as well as the Gentiles. The third major activity, the third major activity is the king's free gift. Now, in the Jewish wedding feast, when you arrived for the ceremony, it was practice, it was a practice for the host to actually give you clothes. Okay, here when we celebrate weddings, sometimes um, the people who are actually being wedded uh, will sometimes provide the bride or the, I mean, the bridesmaids and the bridegroom with clothes. But in those days, the king would provide clothes for everybody, every single person. And these were royal clothes. It's not just the ordinary clothes. Okay, so this was the practice. And wearing these clothes at the wedding feast demonstrated two things. First of all, that you had honor and respect for the king. And the second thing is that you identified with the king, that you identified with the host, whoever gave you the clothes, you identified with, with him because they are his clothes, so you wear them to identify with him. So God, our king, provides us with clothes. He does provide us with clothes. They might not be necessarily material, but they are spiritual. They go beyond material to spiritual clothes. Uh, when we accept the invitation to come to him, he gives us the garments um, of salvation, in, in Isaiah 61, verse 10, it's very specific. He gives us garments of salvation, and he gives us robes of righteousness. Garments of salvation, robes of righteousness. Completely free. The garments of salvation means the whole package of salvation, the fact that our sins are forgiven, that we are healed, we are delivered from oppression, and we are set to prosper in the kingdom of God. We are restored into wholeness. We are at peace with him. These are the garments of salvation. Yes, we do need to work out our salvation because as Daniel testified, when you come into salvation, there's a whole working out that needs to be done. And Paul talked about, you know, in, in Philippians, he says you need to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. So it's important that it's not just a one-time deal. It's a continuous journey that we work out our salvation. So we need to keep ourselves wrapped in these garments of salvation as well as the robes of righteousness. Righteousness is really something very simple that just says you are in right standing with God. You are in right standing with God. In other words, God considers you and I justified or put right with him. This is the other one that's used, justified. We are put right with him because of what Christ has done. Because of what Christ has done. And this may sometimes be a bit confusing to people because many times we are brought up believing that we are sinners. Um, I think this is a common expression, even in the church, that we are sinners. Um, yes, indeed, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. This is in Romans chapter 3, verse 23. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But if you read the next verse, it completes the sentence, because that's just half of it. It completes the sentence. It says, we are justified. We are justified and put right with God because of the redeeming work of Jesus Christ. So we need to clothe ourselves in this righteousness, in this justification, that God has given and imparted to us. It's really a free gift. When we accept to wear these garments of salvation and these robes of righteousness, we can enjoy tremendous blessings at the wedding feast. We can enjoy access, continuous 24-hour access to the king. Uh, we can reign in life because of the righteousness. We can be victorious in life. Um, we have provision. You know, at a wedding feast, you are continuously taken care of. You hardly work. We exchange our righteousness, which is our filthy rags, for righteousness that has far greater glory. And we are kept protected from the outer darkness. Okay, in a wedding feast, there's continuous light. Seven days, they provide light um, that is available. Now, most of us, if not all of us, have attended wedding ceremonies. 
I think I can safely say everybody has attended a wedding ceremony, okay? If you're at a wedding, you're generally going there as one of two parties. Either you're there to work very hard to ensure the services are provided. Am I right? So by the time you're finished, you're like, it's over, thank God. Or the other side is that you're there as a guest to enjoy everything, okay? And you know, as a guest, you can imagine a guest for seven days. A guest is, you are at the receiving end of everything. You really don't do anything. Sometimes it's almost, you almost feel guilty because you see these people running up and down trying to make sure you have water, you have this, you have that, you have that. But you're basically just at the receiving end. If you're a guest, it's a wonderful, wonderful experience. It's a blessing. The, grace, the guest's only job is to fix your eyes on the table. What do you call it? The, um, the high table. That's it. Thank you. <laughs> Okay, the high table, that's, that's all we do if you think about it. We are very fixated on the high table. Look at the groom, check out the clothes, check out the drinks, check out the arrangement on the high table. Look at the groom, it's a fixation on the high table. And so it is with us that when we are invited to the wedding feast, we come in as guests and our role is to fix our eyes on Jesus. To fix our eyes on Jesus, to really celebrate him. And, the worship experience we had this morning through song was really a celebration of that, that we have a groom, that we celebrate our relationship with him, we celebrate who he is, that we join all the, you know, the, the nations of the world as well as the heavenly bodies just to sing, holy, holy, holy are you, the Lord, the God who is almighty. We fix our eyes on the high table. Sometimes it's tempting to look at our our robes, to look at our past, to look at what's happening around us, what's happening with the other guests, check out that person, they're not quite right, check out the other person. But if you do that, you lose attention, you lose, the, the, you know, you lose focus on the bride. Our, our responsibility as guests is really to fix our eyes on the Lord Jesus Christ. When we do that, we enjoy every spiritual blessing that is available. Hallelujah. So the last and fourth major event that I will mention is really the king's anger. This is the other thing that happens at this wedding feast, the king's anger. The king's anger and, and punishment really is reserved for two kinds of people. The first is those who in, reject the invitations. If you remember, there were people who were invited, but they didn't turn up. But the second one is the people who actually reject the garments. There was this one man who rejected the garments. He refused to wear the garments. He came in his own clothes. And uh, those who reject the invitations are those who have really not accepted the Lord Jesus Christ. They're not accepted to come to the feast, and they've basically said no. Those who reject the robes are those who come to God, but they come in their own righteousness, in their own works. And sometimes it's very tempting. You're at the feast, um, everybody's celebrating, but you're thinking about what haven't I done? What sins have I committed? What are the things that I've fallen short of? And yet God bids us, put on my righteousness, and not your righteousness, because your righteousness is as filthy rags. So no matter how much we try in our own efforts to approach the throne of God, to be right with him out of our own efforts, that won't work. That's like our own righteousness. We are to fix our eyes on Jesus, fix our eyes on the king who has given us his righteousness, and we receive that righteousness by faith. <clears throat> so the reality is God's wrath is very, very real. 
You only need to look at the cross and you will see that wrath, how it worked. It was, pun you know, that punishment that fell on the son was punishment on our behalf. It was, the son took it on our behalf. And those who reject the son, those who reject what the son did, it's important to realize and to mention this, um, that those who reject the son will be subject to that wrath. And it's one of the main reasons, really, why the good news of Jesus Christ needs to be continuously preached to all the nations, to everywhere we go. And we can preach it not necessarily by coming to the pulpit, by, by demonstrating it. Um, you know, there is something that Daniel mentioned about this young man who got born again. He came to Daniel. What was it about Daniel that attracted this young man to come to him? There is something he probably saw in this young man says, I need to have what you have. I need to see how to navigate life the same way that you do. And it opened an, op an opportunity to actually minister the good news of the kingdom of God to this young man. So look out for these kinds of opportunities. When you can minister to your children, you can minister to spouses, to people around us, uh, because there's always going to be opportunities. So <clears throat> we have that invitation. If you've never said yes to Jesus to come to the feast, then you really will miss out on the celebration. You'll be cast out. Um, isolated. Um, and it may not happen now, but there is a time of judgment that is coming. Um, there is a verse in John chapter 3, verse 36. I'm going to conclude with this. John chapter 3, verse 36, that says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. But whoever does not obey, does not submit, or does not believe in the Son of God, does not have life. Instead, they have the wrath of God or the punishment of God. That remains on them. So our invitation is really come. Come to the feast. If you have already come, then you need to stay in the presence of God. You need to stay in the presence of God. You need to make sure that uh, as you dwell in the presence, you receive of this fullness of joy. You know, this fullness of joy in his presence. At his right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. Keep your garments of salvation around you. Keep your robes of righteousness. Walk in that righteousness continually, and you will be richly, richly blessed. Amen? Amen. So I will stop here because of time. Um, and like I said, as we've ended this series, um, it would be good um, as you grab your cup of tea or coffee to just talk to one or two other people and just tell them how you have enjoyed this series. And if you haven't, Rather than give them a blank look, <laughs> at least you can mention today's parable, what you've learned in today's parable. Um, the Holy Spirit will bring to remembrance the things that you have learned, so we can trust him for that. But I, I personally have been blessed, and I really testify of that fact. When I went into this series, I was, my heart was really, what can we learn um, that can equip us and enable us to actually walk the life that you have destined for us, Lord? And surely the Lord has provided. Amen? Amen. So let's rise up to our feet and let's pray as we end uh, today's service. So if you are here and uh, perhaps you've never said yes to come to the wedding feast, we'll give you an opportunity um, when others break off for coffee. Um, and you can come up front, uh, we can minister to you what it really means, um, and then we can set you on the right paths. We can help to start you off on the right paths. Father, in the name of Jesus, we do want to just say thank you for being with us during this season. As we have studied these parables and as we have gone through the lessons 
that are in these parables. Lord, we believe that your Holy Spirit has ministered accordingly into our hearts. Father, I pray for everyone that is gathered here this um, morning. The Lord, that these lessons may not, may not be in vain, but they'll be lessons that go beyond just hearing the story to really partaking richly of the feast that you have laid before us. Lord, I thank you because with you, we can look forward to life, that no matter what life throws in our way, we can look forward to a destiny, a rich and abundant uh, destiny. And I pray this for everyone here, that even as they walk out into this coming week, Lord, that your Holy Spirit will keep them in remembrance of the things that they have learned, that they will be equipped, they will continue to be transformed more and more into your image, into your glory. In Jesus' mighty name we've prayed. Amen and amen. So we've come to the end of the service, and I pray that you have a great week.